Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 92, Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. Welcome you to another edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Conray. And I'm John Champion. Grab your tub of popcorn and your gallon of soda. Settle in for movie number two, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. We are here to determine the morals, meanings, and messages of this summer blockbuster. And by the end, I think you will agree that ours are the superior intellects. Well, one of ours. Ken, your American imitating a Mexican imitating an Indian accent is killing me. Oh, I have done far worse than kill you, John. I have hurt you. And I shall go on hurting you. Ken! Ken! And scene. Well done. That was well a lot done. of fun. That was a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah. 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 What, how long? When the, that movie came out, what? 30, as we record this, mm-hmm. uh, 32 years ago? Wow. Wow. I think we wow. nailed it. I think we nailed it. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> after 32 years of watching this movie. <laughs> Got it. Good times. So uh, join us next week when we'll try to pick out a memorable <laughs> scene from Star Trek Three. I yeah. have had enough of trying to do that. <laughs> oh, spoiler. Spoiler. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, uh, in case uh, those of you who didn't uh, get it from the introduction, yeah, today we get to talk about that great turn in 1982 of uh, the Enterprise crew versus Khan. They get to reintroduce themselves to uh, the cast of Space Seed. So uh, it's kind of cool. I mean, this is pretty neat, Ken, that we have a direct sequel to the original series, and it's not an animated form. (laughs) <laughs> you know it is kind of neat yeah it is kind of yeah. neat well yeah. maybe we shouldn't say whether it's neat or not yes it's interesting yeah it's very interesting we'll start with that right and uh, i imagine that our audience will find it interesting too and i would imagine that they might have some thoughts on the topic and in case they wanted to reach us uh there are some very good very efficient ways to do that um if you use the handle mission log pod you can find us in three distinct places facebook skype and twitter you can also call us 323-522-5641 and you can email us missionlog at roddenberry.com remember we may use your comments in an upcoming episode of mission log should we go ahead and say right now that it's going to be hard for 
I believe this for you. I know this for me that it's going to be hard to separate. This this is my Star Trek movie. I mean, Next Generation is my mm-hmm. Star Trek series, but this is my Star Trek movie. This is the first Star Trek movie that I actually went and stood in line opening night. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't get half the jokes, but I got the fact that I was on the outside of something. And, right. And I really started paying a lot more attention after this, I think. Right, um, right. This was just, I mean, Star Trek Two was was in a way... Um, an awakening, maybe not in the same way that Star Wars was, because Star Wars was so wildly different, and plus it hit like five years when I was, mm-hmm. when I was five years younger. Mm-hmm. But uh, but man, it, it almost it almost feels like sacrilege to say we're going to examine Star Trek too, because to <laughs> right, me, right. you enjoy Star Trek too. Yeah, yeah. Not well, to jump I, to the end, but I mean, you know. no, no, no. But but I, I like doing that because I, as we have done with uh, Star Trek: The Original Series, we found episodes that were entertaining mm-hmm. that may or may not have really felt like Star Trek. That felt like that had anything to do with the bigger picture of Star Trek. We found episodes that were overlooked that were maybe not loved as much that we were able to pull a nugget of. Star Trek wisdom out of. So when you get to Star Trek 2, I mean, I think part of the deal here, and we've seen this with parts of the original series as well, the iconography of that movie, the the pop culture penetration that that movie has Mm -hmm. is so overwhelming. Uh, um, I've said it, you know, for better or for worse, when you've got George Costanza yelling Khan, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, in Seinfeld, that that really tells you that that is now when you say Wrath of Khan, you're not just talking about a movie, a Star Trek movie. You're talking about a pop culture touchstone. Yeah. Which is kind of amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It really yeah. is kind of incredible. Lots of stuff to get to, of course. But we start the way we always start. Uh, John Champion. It is trivia time, sir. Won't you please uh, spend that trivia knowledge? All right. Well, we got a lot to talk about today, Ken. But um I, I really feel like I have to start out with something that is not trivia, and that is Ricardo Montalban's chest. <laughs> All right. This is one of those urban legends, like like Walt Disney being frozen, uh, that Montalban somehow had a fake, a, a rubber prosthetic chest. Nothing could be further from the truth. The man was a bodybuilder. Um, and as a middle-aged man, he could have whipped both of our asses with one hand tied behind his back. Um, so that was all real. That was all him. And um, woe be unto you if you made fun of that to his face. <laughs> okay, but you can see why people would think that, right? Because he's wearing that necklace all the way along. Sure, sure. And he's, he's got, got the, that kind of open yeah. you know, shirt thing. Yeah, yeah. So. and like uh, from the necklace up, it, he's, he's a man of a certain age. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and from the necklace down, it's <laughs> right. like smooth and muscle. And so you can see why people would think, yeah, that looks like a little trickery. Sure, 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 sure. Right. Yeah, but but it is not, I assure you. Um, James Horner did the music for this. Remember, I talked about how much I loved the uh, the score from the motion picture. Uh, but we don't have Jerry Goldsmith. We have James Horner this time around. Ken, have you ever heard the soundtrack for the Roger Corman film Battle Beyond the Stars? You know, it's funny. I watched Battle Beyond the Stars a lot when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So I know I have heard it, but I would be mm-hmm. hard pressed to tell you anything about it. I'm guessing it had notes. I, well, it had notes, and I was going to say if if you have heard Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan recently, you've heard Battle Beyond the Stars. Is that true? Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're they're very very close. Huh. Yeah. 
Interesting. Yeah. James Horner so every now and then. That was the best part then of Battle Beyond the Stars. I, I, hey, I love Battle Beyond the Stars, and I, I would when you stack up a movie with Sybil Danning in it, uh, I would not say that the music was the best part of that movie. Okay, I don't even, um, I don't even know what that is, but I'm oh, assuming or, it's a, a thing. Or, yeah, or, or Robert Vaughn. Yeah. Who okay. Was, awesome. was he really? Was he in that? Yeah. Wasn't John Boy in that movie? Yeah, he sure was. Okay. Man. <laughs> and John Saxon. Oh, my God. We're going to do the Battle Beyond the Stars no, podcast. No, we are not. All Please right. move on. But anyway, there's just a, a little note there to say that sometimes James Horner is accused of being derivative of his prior work. And that may be one of those places where you go, huh, that, that sounds familiar. Um, so we need to talk about Nicholas Meyer, the writer-director brought in to work on Star Trek II. Um, he is a huge Sherlock Holmes fan. And in fact, he was the writer-director of The 7% Solution. Very cool uh, movie that if you have not seen it, I would recommend. Wait, um, wait, okay, so for those of us who haven't, what's mm-hmm. the tie-in to Sherlock Holmes? Is it a Sherlock Holmes movie? It is a Sherlock Holmes movie. Okay. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> I assumed based on what you said, but you know. Yes, yes, yeah. But it's, it's a little different take on Sherlock Holmes, which, okay. uh, which I like. Um, now, he, he was a very unlikely choice to take on Star Trek for a number of reasons. But um, let's talk about some of the things right up front. He was not a fan. He was not really that familiar with Star Trek. Uh, but he, he had a reputation as a writer and as a very intelligent writer. He took all the good ideas that he liked from the multiple drafts that had been floating around for what the next story would be. And uh, he just took out all the pieces that he liked, cobbled it together, and turned it around in very, very little time. He has said that his approach was to rehearse everything. And I found this very interesting that he, he said, obviously, in the the idea of efficiency, get as much of that done off stage as you can so you're well prepared when you go in under the lights and on the sets and in the expensive studio. Um, he said that by doing that, you find all the areas that you can cut out because most scripts are overwritten. Um, now, the only actor that he did not rehearse with was Ricardo Montalban, who was busy doing Fantasy Island at the time. Um, he gave him a copy of Moby Dick and said, read this. It's all in there. <laughs> in terms of understanding Star Trek II. Um, in the first scene that they shot with Montalban on the Botany Bay, the uh, the actor, Meyer says, was letter perfect, but he read it way over the top. So Meyer told Montalban that Laurence Olivier had said, never to show your top, never to show the top end of your range, because then you've got nowhere to go. His idea was that a crazy person never has to show how crazy he is, so his direction to Montalban was always to go smaller because then you'll never know what he'll do next. Um, same method applied to the death scene. He said he, his goal was just to keep it all honest and simple and in character. Um, his approach was to do what he liked. He had no intention of trying to second guess tens of millions of Star Trek fans. Um, he brought up the idea of books like A Tale of Two Cities, uh, the reading glasses. He wanted these tangible things that would make the characters real. Um, and he even wanted some characters to smoke. And there was a no smoking sign on the bridge that kind of got cut out. Uh, he was overruled on that one by uh, <laughs> the producers of the movie. Um, and it's worth mentioning, there's a director's cut of The Wrath of Khan. There's also a cut from the ABC television network when it aired there. Um, honestly, it's irrelevant for our purposes here. Uh, there are interesting details revealed in those various cuts, uh, but it doesn't affect our look at the story or the morals or the ethics. Um, now, 
to me, Star Trek II Wrath of Khan is what happens when you suddenly make a movie project very lean. Budgets were cut way down, and Harve Bennett came in from the TV department of Paramount, not feature films. Um, so we talked last week about how uh, the budget and then the grosses for Star Trek the Motion Picture were kind of all over the map. Um, I reported that, that movie made $82 million, uh, in the U.S., and it made about another $50 million outside of that. But there are estimates that are all over the place. Um, and we talked about its ballooning budget. There are just so many sources to really be able to get an accurate count. Um, compared to Wrath of Khan? Cost about twelve million dollars to make this movie. It <laughs> grew- yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, really? Uh huh. About twelve million bucks. Wow. And uh, as we remember from the motion picture, that cost uh, when you added everything up, somewhere in the range of forty to forty-six million dollars. Um, Wrath of Khan grossed about $78 million in the U.S., so even though a little less than the motion picture, still a much, much better return on investment. See, I can't help wondering, we've talked in the past about how sometimes the storytelling on the original series was better because they didn't have a lot of money. And And I I totally agree. I almost can't help wondering if that wasn't the case here as well, because if they had had the same kind of budget that they had for the motion picture, first of all, it might have been an hour longer. Mm-hmm. And then you might have gotten overwhelmed by uh, by effects at that point. I mean, I will yeah. say sometimes the bridge does look a little small, especially on the Reliant. Mm-hmm. Although the Reliant is a smaller ship, but I wonder mm-hmm. if the um, I wonder if the storytelling isn't better because they couldn't say, "Well, no, we'll just we'll fix it in post." Um, I, I usually think that it is. You know, when uh, when a movie producer says. For the next one, our budget is twice as high and we'll have twice as many explosions. I'm like, well, what they really should have done is cut your budget in half. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know? um, but yeah, that, that is what happened here, in fact. And, and this is also where we begin to see Gene Roddenberry's dwindling involvement with the films. He was a consultant at this point, and he was not always pleased with what was happening, including the idea of killing off Spock. Spoiler alert. Um, Susan Sackett, who was Gene's assistant at the time, revealed Spock's death to a convention audience in the UK. And, you know, pre-internet days, this still sent the fan world into a tizzy. Um, The word spread very, very quickly. Harv Bennett even asked that Gene fire Susan Sackett over this. He did not. Um, this is also a good place to address the idea that sometimes you have to consider the source when it comes to trivia. Uh, George Takei, who we all love like crazy, uh, wrote extensively in his book about the transition from the motion picture to the Wrath of Khan. It's all very entertaining as he paints a picture of Walter Koenig being his friend with the ear to the ground, always calling him up saying what the latest gossip was about Star Trek. Uh, he talks about addressing Harve Bennett and uh, Nick Meyer on different occasions about promoting Sulu. And the scene was shot but Takei blames William Shatner for giving a less than stellar performance, and the shot was killed from the final edit. Um, he also describes the personalities involved, like Montalban being bigger than life and bursting into the makeup room in the morning. Uh, Ken, by the way, when I thought about it, uh, the Enterprise crew, with the exception of Koenig and uh, Khan's crew, actually had no scenes together. So I'm trying to... <laughs> reconcile that in my head um well, he what may have else? just been hanging out he may have been he yeah may have been. you know what, every morning what else is he gonna do yeah. up at the same time sure. why wouldn't you yeah yeah 
Um, what else? A couple of other little tidbits to share with you. Um, Savick was half Romulan, and that is mentioned in a deleted scene. And um, Khan had a baby, uh, literally a toddler who we would have seen on the Botany Bay and later in the transporter room of the Reliant as the Genesis device is armed. Uh, weird. Very weird. I, I may have nightmares now about the Khan baby. Hey, uh, before we get further into Khan's wrath, a quick word from Connected Data, makers of the transporter and sponsors of this week's Mission Log podcast. Uh, we've talked about it for the past couple of weeks. You've probably got a pretty good idea of what a transporter is at this point. It's basically a great big private cloud consuming as much data as you want to throw its way, though thankfully without destroying you and the things it encounters on its way to you. And it's not really great big, but it does store a lot of data. Uh, Transporter acts as your own private cloud, so you don't have to worry about people hacking into it, and you don't have to worry about who else has access to it, because it is a thing that you control. So you know who has access to it. That's you and the people with whom you choose to share the information on your transporter, uh, whether they have a transporter or not. And they also can only see the information that you choose to share, uh, not the entire contents of your transporter, unless you choose to share the entire contents, excuse me, the entire contents of your transporter. So privacy is one big selling point of the transporter. Price is another. Uh, 100 gigabytes of storage on Dropbox costs 100 bucks a year. You could pay that if you want to, year after year after year, or you could pay um, $200 one time for a transporter with 500 gigabytes of storage. And uh, if that's not enough, they do have other capacities available as well. Well, and Ken, one of the best reasons to check out a transporter right now is that they have uh, exclusive offers for Mission Log listeners. Um, Our listeners can save 10% off their purchase. So that would be up to $35 on any transporter model by using the code MLOG. That's M-L-O-G when you buy at filetransporterstore.com. They come in 500 gigabyte, one terabyte, two terabyte models. You can even buy a model that has no drive, so you can hook up your own USB-enabled hard drive. And that model that doesn't actually have its own built-in storage capacity, the transporter sync, you can get that for 20 bucks off. You use a special code for that, MLOG20, M-L-O-G-2-0, at filetransporterstore.com. The best part about it is everybody gets free shipping from Transporter, and if you aren't absolutely thrilled with it, you can return it within 30 days, risk-free, satisfaction guarantee, and get your money back. That URL again is filetransporterstore.com. Transporter, storage and sharing made simple and secure. And we do thank them for sponsoring this week's show. Holy Blade. Seriously, holy bleeping bleep. For my what passes for money for computers, it's all downhill from here. Seriously, after today, find another podcast. This is it. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Here's what you need to know. Take the beginning of Star Trek The Motion Picture, add a few years, subtract some of the brashness of Captain Kirk, and replace it with a bit of melancholy and self-reflection. Also make him Admiral. Kirk has once again given up command of the Enterprise. His longtime second-in-command, Spock, is now the ship's captain. There is one other thing you should know. Fifteen years ago, Kirk and crew came across Khan Noonien Singh, a leader of the eugenics war from the dark time of Earth's 20th century. 
Kirk neither killed nor imprisoned Khan, choosing instead to leave him on the lush, though rugged and uninhabited planet Seti Alpha 5. And I should probably tell you about Genesis. Okay, Genesis is this thing that some scientists came up with to turn barren, lifeless planets into fertile, life-sustaining planets. And the scientists are Carol Marcus, an old flame of Kirk's, and her son David, who is also Kirk's son. David doesn't know that Kirk is his father, he just knows that he doesn't trust Starfleet. What happens? We start with some of Spock's cadets, including a striking female half-Vulcan, half-Romulan named Savik, taking the Kobayashi Maru, a no-right-answer test meant to show a cadet's character. Savik gets everybody killed, but such is the way of the Kobayashi Maru. Kirk will be hanging with Spock and his cadets as they take a three-week training cruise through space. But once in space, Carol Marcus calls. She wants to know why Jim is taking Genesis. He is, of course, not. Instead, Khan has plans to take Genesis, having found out about it from Captain Terrell and Commander Chekhov. They were looking for a lifeless planet on which to test Genesis and found Khan on what they thought was SETI Alpha 6. Turns out something went really wrong on SETI Alpha 5, and Khan, who was a madman before, is now an angry madman, bent on killing Kirk. As Kirk approaches Space Station Regula 1, the science station where Carol Marcus is working, the USS Reliant approaches the Enterprise. But it's not under Captain Terrell's command. It's under Khan's. Khan attacks the Enterprise, but stops just short of destroying it if... If... Kirk will give him all of the info they have on Genesis. Instead, Kirk nearly destroys the Reliant, which retreats. Kirk goes ahead to Carol's aid, beaming down to Space Station Regula 1 with McCoy and Savick. There they find a lot of dead scientists, along with a living Chekhov and Terrell. Khan's terrible. He put things in their bodies. Plus, did you see all the dead guys hanging around? Kirk calls to the Enterprise. Spock says it'll be days before they can fly again. Kirk tells Spock he's got some more stuff to check out if they don't hear from him in one hour. Beat it. Kirk, McCoy, Savick, Terrell, and Chekhov beam to wherever Carol, David, and the other surviving scientist went. That's deep inside Regula, the lifeless planetoid around which Regula 1 orbits. Upon seeing Kirk, David attacks. He doesn't know about the whole dad thing. Carol calms them down, but only for a moment. Turns out Terrell and Chekhov are working for Khan. Kirk has led them straight to Genesis. Khan will be taking that, but first, he'd like Terrell to kill Kirk. Terrell can't do it, and kills himself instead. And that thing Khan put in Chekhov's body comes crawling out. Ew. Kirk tries to goad Khan into coming down to fight him, but Khan figures leaving him for dead will do. He beams Genesis out, then goes to destroy the Enterprise. Which is not where it was supposed to be. Turns out where Kirk and the gang have been hanging out is not the Genesis Cave. It's the Genesis Cave vestibule. The cave is further in, and... Well, let's just say Genesis works. Sunlight, waterfalls, fruit... It's a grotto of Eden. Savik's still bummed about how she did on the Kobayashi Maru. How did Kirk do? Not how, but what. He cheated. He doesn't like to lose. At this point, he picks up the communicator and tells Spock, who was supposed to be gone, to get them out of there. It was a code. A trick for Khan. Kirk doesn't like to lose. The Enterprise is hobbled, but it can move. They have to get the Genesis back from Khan, though. Kirk gives him a whistle. Hey, Khan, you're stupid. Khan follows the Enterprise into the Maktara Nebula. No sensors, no screens, no shields. Basically, whichever ship gets lucky will win. And if there's one thing Kirk knows how to do, it's get lucky. <clears throat> Khan does have one more trick up his sleeve. 
Genesis. On a barren planet, it makes life. Set it off near life, though, and it'll kill that life. All of it. The Enterprise is still damaged. As Genesis counts down, the Enterprise tries to flee, but the warp core is damaged. They won't get far enough away in time. Or they wouldn't, if Spock didn't sacrifice himself. He fixes the warp core, losing his life, but saving everyone else. Because the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Kirk presides over Spock's funeral, then jettisons his body onto the new planet created by the Genesis device. Maybe they'll come back. Someday. In the meantime, the end. Well done, Ken. Hey, uh, can we talk timeline just a, a wee bit here? Sure. Um, it, it's interesting to me that the motion picture came out in 1979. Star Trek wrapped, the original series wrapped in 1969. Mm-hmm. Um, but the motion picture actually takes place about two and a half years after the end of the five-year mission. Yes. So roughly four and a, a little change after Turnabout Intruder. I was impressed with how good everyone looked in the motion picture. Now, Wrath of Khan was released in 1982, three years after the motion picture, and I feel like a lot more time has passed. Well, it's really lot, interesting. A lot more time has passed. I mean, he yeah. uh, Kirk says, um, when he's sitting in the Genesis vestibule with, uh, with Marcus, mm-hmm. uh, Carol, not David, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a man out there I haven't seen in 15 years who's trying to kill me. Right. Now, was Space Seed in the first season or second season of the original series? Uh, first season. First season. Okay. So, basically, since we joined the crew of the Enterprise, it's been 15 years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so, well, so, so was, what I'm saying is more time has passed. Like, seven yeah, years yeah. has passed in Star Trek, the motion picture, and Star Trek, uh, um, um, the Rally Con. Right, right, right. But, and what I'm saying is that only three years in real world time have passed. Yeah. Uh, between the motion picture and this. And it has a whole new look. It just really, it feels like everything has changed. And I wonder why they had decided to make the motion picture take place such, you know, such a short amount of time after the original series. Um, like, mm-hmm. what, what was the purpose of doing that when clearly it was 10 years later, you know? Um, That's a good question, but, although I think it's good yeah. that they did. Honestly, because mm-hmm. that gave them the seven-year window that they were able to take for, for Wrath of Khan. It really felt to me like – I mean like I said at the beginning of the recap, it felt to me like Paramount almost wanted to forget that the first movie happened, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, yeah. they liked the fact that the audience was still there. They liked the fact that they still had all the principles. But let's use the – let's lose the uniforms. Let's let's make it a bit zippier. Let's cut the budget. Yeah. <laughs> they, oh, yeah. They really they just kind of wanted to – footage. Yeah. Did they really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, space stock and there are shots of the Enterprise and okay. yeah, a lot of that stuff is right. stock. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. Um, the other thing that has a very different look, huge communicators. Mm-hmm. Well, some people, although Terrell apparently yeah, didn't get right. the memo, he's still using the wrist communicator from the motion picture. <laughs> right. One of the only right. things to be held over, I believe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Although some of that stuff had been designed for the motion picture. So like the phaser, the which I really like. I like the redesigned phasers. Those had been designed for the motion picture, but not actually seen until uh, Wrath of Khan. Um, but yeah, little, little pieces like that. Um, hey, one of our listeners, Alice, who we know and love and have had on the show before, points out something that I thought was interesting. And she was saying that the horror of this movie 
really kind of shocked and, and kind of turned her off a little bit. You know, the, the bloodstained jacket, the torture on regular one when we see the bodies kind of being lowered from the rafters there, mm-hmm. uh, the, the eel on SETI Alpha 5, all of this stuff. I, I can see where people would be a little put off by that. I mean, to me, it doesn't really bother me. I think it speaks to the flexibility of Star Trek as a format that you can do different kinds of stories and you know, one director gets his hands on it and it's his take another director gets their hands on it and it's his or her take so i don't know did, did that stand out to you seeing as how we've watched so many dozens of hours of star trek up until now well i mean it feels like a difference between both the times and uh, the format right i mean mm-hmm. for television in the 1960s you wouldn't have been able to have quite as much realistic blood i don't think you certainly wouldn't have been able sure. to have the, the level of torture I mean, all those guys hanging upside down really is creepy, and I do remember that being particularly horrific um, yeah, when I was yeah. a kid. Same with uh, with uh, Ricardo Montalban's two face at the end of it. Mm-hmm. You know, like his half yeah. like his half scarred and and burned and destroyed right. body as he as he crawls over to the Genesis device and and delivers ah. that wonderful. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna get you, yeah. even though I'm not. But I won't yeah. know, so I'll die at least thinking that I you know did what I was trying to do. Um, I- I, there's one thing that we I, I personally feel like we have to address. Mm-hmm. I know this has been stated again and again and again, but it should be stated one more time. As far as we know, um, Khan and Chekhov never met. <laughs> right, right. And and that's like what the whole thing hinges on, right? At the beginning was, I, I don't know you, but you, I never forget a face. But I must right. have seen your ID laying around someplace because you weren't <laughs> even on the show yet when I was there. Um, I, I wonder why not use Sulu or, or why not use Kyle? And and because Kyle's in this movie, God bless him. And he, yeah, even, he yeah. even says it kind of weird. He I even know. Th- gives it a little bit of a call thing, but you know, call. <laughs> right? Using Kyle would have been a stretch, but mm-hmm. at least it would have made it would have worked <laughs> in the timeline right. because Chekhov just was not there when Khan was. It it never really bothered me. I mean, I know that yes, everybody points it out. It, it never really bothered me simply because I think going into that movie. Mm-hmm. I, I, had, I was thinking about Star Trek as a whole. Yeah. Here are all the characters from Star Trek. Chekhov is one of those characters, so yeah. it makes sense that he would be there. And you know, if if we wanted to retcon this, there, there's well, our you have to. You, you have to. You have to retcon then, this. Then you have to say that Chekhov was working in the galley uh, or somewhere else, <laughs> working on those meatloafs. For right. uh, Thanksgiving, and and Khan just happened to wander in there in one of the moments we didn't uh, see what he was doing on the Enterprise. He was below decks, is what you're saying. He was. He was below decks. All right. I got yeah. another question for you. Go ahead. Is Spock praying to the skull of his salat? <laughs> we remember from the animated series. I know it's been talked about in other places in in the Star Trek universe that uh, uh-huh. Spock had this pet that died when he was right. you know young, right. kind of a big cat. Right. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Not not like the big electric cat from <laughs> whichever <laughs> right, animated movie right. it was, but like a big cat. Uh, yeah. And in the animated series, we actually see you know young Spock, baby boy Spock, deal with you know having to whether his young cat is going to or his older cat is going to live or die. Mm-hmm. When he's uh, when he's praying or meditating or whatever, uh, when uh, Kirk comes to take uh, control of the Enterprise, there's there's a skull of something there in his room that he's not exactly praying to. He's not exactly meditating over, but it's just sitting there, right, right yeah, under the big itic, uh, right, a giant itic, the yeah. giant eighties like yeah, boo boo, 
itig. Hold over from the seventies, groovy itig. That's like seriously as wide as it is tall, and it's at least seven feet tall. I would say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, this I, I like that with being being the the Salot skull. If they had put gills on it, then it would have been the uh, a fish cat. Would have been a fish skull. cat. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Kazinti, Kazinti. By the way, Kazinti. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's what they are. I think you're supposed to say bless you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Hey, um, by the just a little hint to Kirk. Uh, Kirk should not have suggested to Scotty to Word. try auxiliary power. Yeah, I'm so with you yeah. on that. I, you know, I yeah. wanted I wanted Scotty to say, "Well, you know, I was on my way to do that when you called." <laughs> when you're right, right. So tell you what, why don't you let me do my job, and why don't you command people on the bridge? Does that sound like something you might be doing? Right. He didn't take that advice from McCoy in the first movie who said, Jim, you're pushing. Your people know their jobs. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely did. <laughs> I love that line. Well, yeah, but and, and, and we Scotty's an idiot and he might have been drinking. <laughs> right. I've got to let him I'm, know. And now I'm on my way to sickbay to go tell McCoy <laughs> what hypo to use. <laughs> and then I'm going to the kitchen to have another word with that cook making the meatloaves. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Got a few questions about Khan and crew. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. For all of his genetic and intellectual superiority, why is Khan the only one of his two hundred year old crew to have aged? Mm. Because it was like it was like it was like Peter Pan and the Lost Boys, but if Peter Pan had gotten old, if, if Peter Pan had gone to hang in <laughs> London for a while, well, I, I guess basically it's like Hook. Now that I think about yeah. it, Ugh, yeah, yeah. Um, and he also seems to be the only one um, to have not gotten younger. Not only did he age, but the rest of his crew, who are who are much whiter. And younger than I remember <laughs> yeah. from, uh, yeah. it, but he, but he does make it clear that these are the same people because he says, you know, these people swore an oath of allegiance to me 200 years before you were born to yeah. uh, Terrell. Yeah. So this is supposed to be the same crew and I get not getting the same actors back necessarily, but they didn't even go for anybody that looked like it. It's almost like if a bunch of kids had shown up to a Star Trek movie and seen a bunch of old people, you know, right, like, right. like the cast of Star Trek. Right. Um, that they would have been turned off. So we needed we needed something for the kids to get behind. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't understand it. But it's always, well, not always, not when I was a kid, but over recent years, it's bothered me that, um, and the, and also they don't know how to bathe. Khan does. Yeah. Yeah. He was very well, well yeah. taken care of. Yeah but, yeah. but his kids, his kids, <laughs> kids don't. He's teaching them all the wrong things. Vengeance, not hygiene. You're right, right. Yeah, it, it is very weird. I mean, uh, I have heard fans say that, uh, you know, uh, Joaquin uh, Khan's sort of second in command there, that he would honestly have been that character from Space Seed, or maybe now that is the son of that character from Space Seed. I mean, you can sort of, again, retcon it however you want. Um, but yeah, I agree. There should have. There was no one else there. there. Yeah, yeah, there was nobody. There was yeah. nobody Khan's age there. Yeah. Which is weird. Um, there should have been an older actor somewhere in there. I do have another question. How does okay. Khan know the uh, Klingon po- proverb that tells that revenge is a dish best served cold? Because there were no Klingons on the Enterprise. Unless maybe this is what he and Chekhov talked about down in the galley. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Or maybe <laughs> that whole time that he was uh, sitting around in sick bay just reading uh, all oh, of Oh, that's those, true. You know, he could have read some Klingon books. That's you right. Know. He did go through everything. Yeah. Oh, thank yeah, goodness a, they didn't have memory alpha time. available. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Everything, everything. Right, right. Yeah. It, there's another Kirk line here, uh, aside from him telling Scotty what to do. <laughs> Kirk says, Mr. Savick, you go right on quoting regulations after he has 
very cleverly unlocked the uh, the reliance uh, uh, shield uh, pattern, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I kept thinking, well, if Kirk had followed regulations, their shields would have been up from the beginning, and they would not have been hit so hard by the Reliant. Oh, that's so, that's that's Spock's fault. We'll get to it because well, that's well, actually going to come up. But that's Spock's fault. Yeah, but, but, but uh, okay, all right, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. You don't think it's Spock's fault? Well, I mean, Savick is the one who said, "Captain, of my, you know, remind you of regulations." Okay, and but go ahead. That. Okay, you, 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 yeah, right, and then right, start, says, start her line. Start her line, and I'll be Spock. So you're Savick. You're looking, okay, you're looking great, by the way. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank I'll, you. I'll be, it, it's the hair. I'll be it's still regulation. Yeah, um, and she says, "If I, if I may remind the captain, that is James T. Kirk you're talking to, Ensign. He knows what he's doing." I've got I've got Heston apparently. Playing <laughs> right, right, right. Or bad Heston. Um, but you know he just he stops her cold. But we'll mm-hmm. get to it. We'll get to it. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Um, I found it interesting that it was so easy for Captain to uh, Captain Terrell mm-hmm. to kill an unknown when they were in the uh, the Genesis cave or outside the Genesis cave. Much more difficult to kill Kirk. You know, it's a good thing that there was this an unknown standing there who got in the way of the phaser fire the one scientist Mm -hmm. the one Mm -hmm. other scientist who's not a marcus by the way yeah 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 Yeah. it's it's all about who you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) paul winfield is great in this i think he's he's fantastic he's not on screen for a lot of time um i have to say i love that phaser effect too as a kid and I, and I still love it. There's no continuity to it whatsoever. I don't think you'll see it past Star Trek Two. But there's something um, almost forbidden planet about it. There's something almost hand drawn about the way people uh, people buy it at the end of that phaser. But Paul Winfield, just that 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 moment where he wants to kill Kirk, but he can't kill Kirk, or he you know has to kill Kirk, but he doesn't want to. Whatever it is, mm-hmm. I mean, there's not this. And and maybe this again, this might be Nicholas Meyer, actually. This might be, you know, him telling everybody to tone it down because we don't get a tortured, I want to kill him, but I'm unable to or anything like that. We get like a tilt of the head and like a furrow of the brow. And he's like, ah, you know, I want to, but, mm-hmm. but it's difficult. And then the next thing he does is he eats his own phaser. Not, yeah. not, not, not <laughs> right. physically, but, you know, in, in sort of, you know, cop show. Yeah, parlance. He eats because yeah, right. right. that would be that would be a, that movie would take a weird turn. At that point. <laughs> Weirder than the guy killing himself if he just starts eating his gun, like literally <laughs> eating his gun. That would be that would be bizarre. Well, and I love the sound effect. I love the scream yeah. that, that people kind of make when the phaser hits them. Wow, I, I yeah, think that's just, just them really screaming, weird. isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not like a sound effect. That's not like a pew, like a dinner. <laughs> right. It's like, right. ow. Only, you know, lots worse. And, and speaking of screaming. Yes. The the con scream. I mean, again, this is so just taking a life of its own beyond the movie. You know, it, it, somebody screams and you go, okay, they're doing Shatner screaming con, you know. Yeah. And, um, but but again, the, there's so much subtext here, and, and I think certainly when I was ten years old watching this for the first time, I didn't get that the whole uh, "if hours seemed like days, if we're by the book" and blah blah blah. I didn't get that that whole thing was code. Mm-hmm. And, to, and at the end, it's like, oh wait, Kirk outsmarted them somehow. How would he do that? And then you go back and watch it again when I'm a little bit older, and go, oh, of course they they tipped it off right away. Duh. Um, but that scream is the the cap, the coda to that uh, 
that great moment. And uh, it's Kirk Gaming Con. It's kind of cool. I, I like seeing that understanding more and more of that context now. That yeah. it's not just just a yell out of anger. Yeah, it's, you are. Uh, it's part of the game. You are honestly one of few people who get that. And and, well, I, and I will I will fully well no they don't though and you know they don't you had Roberto Orsi or or Bob Orsi or whatever you want to call him uh, on this show and you know he didn't get it I didn't get it a lot of a lot of listeners right now I'm sure don't get it unless they were listening to the Bob Orsi interview because it's it's it is you get so caught up in that moment that you don't realize that Kirk's not really angry at Khan at that point although you see I think you could make an argument that Kirk is actually still angry at Khan. This is he going has to make every it reason to be angry. Yeah. This is going to make it harder for him to catch Khan. I mm-hmm. mean, if Khan had gone ahead and, you know, beamed down to fight him, uh, Kirk, for some reason, thinks he would have won. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he wouldn't have <laughs> no, no because way. Khan, you know, is genetically enhanced and will, and will, you know, rip him in half in front of his kid. But um, most people don't catch that thing that you're talking about still. And I'm not, I'm not saying that just to make myself feel better. I'm saying you and I have both been present when other people have argued with you about whether or not what you're saying is true. But the timeline and knowing what Kirk knows, it absolutely does work. It is just a, it is a, it is a show for anybody listening in. Yeah. Well, and I think what I'm saying is that it, it gives subtext to a scene that otherwise would have no subtext. And, and I think that's what's really good about it. And I think that's what's really good about Nicholas Meyer's writing is that you get to add depth to something that's just like, he's angry, so he's yelling. <laughs> you know, He's angry. There are things to be angry about. He just watched Captain Terrell eat a phaser, and he just watched that thing crawl out of Chekhov's ear, and he's a step behind in being able to just capture Khan and put all this to rest, although, like you said, that would not happen. <laughs> right. Khan would have absolutely destroyed him with a flick of the wrist. <laughs> but, but... Um, you go back and watch everything that led into that scene and it's all the Kobayashi Maru and it's all Kirk trying to be a step ahead, which of course makes the end of the movie that much more poignant, which we'll get to here in a moment. Let's talk about the son. Um, Giving Kirk a son finally brings home all that sort of, you know, the philandering Kirk that we saw in the later half of Star Trek, the original series. I, I think it's a good way for the character to to be moved along by the writer. And I thought it was very interesting that Carol Marcus was the one who wanted Kirk to stay away. Yeah, that it wasn't him just like, oh, gotta go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It gave her depth, and saying that, I love B.B. Besh in this as Carol Marcus, because it is so nice to see an adult woman who is a fully fleshed-out character. Um, I, I think she's just fantastic in this. She's smart, and she's sassy, and she's a great match for Kirk. By the way, B.B. Uh, Besh, the late B.B. Besh, uh, she is the mother of Samantha Mathis, uh, another actress who you may remember. I, I, I do. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Good. Um, and can we talk before we get into our discussion here? Can we can we talk about the death scene a little bit? Um, because Which I think one? This is... I mean, I think this is really interesting, and I would actually like to know. Mm. And I don't have Nicholas Meyer here to ask. But once mm-hmm. the rumor that Spock was going to die was out, was it yeah. then written that he was going to die in the first two minutes of the movie? Because in the whole Kobayashi Maru thing, everybody dies. Um, right. With the exception of Savick and maybe a couple of other people, but Bones is dead, uh, Spock is dead. I can't remember if uh, if Uhura was dead or not. Um, 
because that's the way of the Kobayashi Maru. But we did all know, and I remember when I was a kid, even before I was really mm-hmm. paying attention to stuff like that, I remember hearing that Spock was going to die. Yeah. And so then in the first five minutes when Spock dies and he gets back up, I'm like, oh, that's clever. Right. So now they, we get they to got, carry they on. got people yeah. to think that Spock was going to die and he kind of did. And we, and we go on. I mean, do you happen to know in all of your trivia stuff? Was that put in there to sort of throw people off the idea that Spock was going to die, even though he was? Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. That, uh, that, that was the, the reason? The, the, yeah, the idea was to put it in there, get it get it out of the way up front. So we we sort of, you know, tip of the hat to the fan rumor mill. Okay. And then we carry on with the story. <laughs> and then we're going to go ahead and kill <laughs> and him anyway. And then we sucker punch you at the end. Nice. Yeah. Well done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was very well done. I'm assuming, though, it's the second death scene that you're talking about. It is the second death scene that I'm talking about. Um you know, there's so much that could be analyzed about that scene, so much to be discussed about it. Um, but it, it is one of the rare, just truly great dramatic moments of Star Trek. And for me personally, the thing that just breaks my hard heart every single time is Spock in the radiation chamber standing up and straightening his uniform. Mm-hmm. The, the simple dignity in that moment just absolutely crushes me. And, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier about Nicholas Meyer, saying that he just wants to allow the actor to do the job of inhabiting the scene. There's no dialogue needed there. You know, it, it's just a character moment that tells you so much more. Um, I, I, I thought it was incredible. And um, if we put this sort of into context, you know, the, the impact of that death scene is absolutely huge. So when they did this in the movie, when, when they wrote the scene and filmed it, you know, they weren't being coy or clever at the time saying, like, well, we'll, we'll allow ourselves a way out here and hang on for Star Trek 3, even though we knew there was a Star Trek 3 coming. This was in Nimoy's contract. And Gene Roddenberry was none too happy about it. So they played the scene with depth. And in 1982, when you saw this movie, all you knew was Spock was dead. And I think that's great because it's a bold thing. We don't see that kind of thing again until we get to, you know, the Joss Whedon shows. People freaked out when in the movie Serenity, you killed one major character and then you wait a few minutes and then you kill another major character. And it's unceremonious and it's sudden and it's awful. And then the movie just carries on. And Joss Whedon loves to kill his major characters because it gives some realism and some depth to what's going on. And I think that's one of the reasons that this movie is just so good is you allow that moment to happen, but you're not winking at the audience when you do it. So, I have been told that my suggestion that you stop listening after this episode may not have been the best suggestion I could give. Be sure to keep listening to Mission Log. There are no doubt some great things to come. Things almost as great as Star Trek 2. Maybe. So Ken, as we are wont to do... Um, we get to talk about kind of the, the morals, the meanings, the messages. Uh, we get to dig a little deeper into the Wrath of Khan. Um, I think you and I both have um, a handful of notes and ideas on this. Um, you know, one of the things that we've uh, seen in Star Trek before that makes a, uh, a guest appearance in this movie is the idea of science run amok. 
Um, we mm. get uh, we get McCoy being the voice of conscience, asking uh, what we are all thinking. What if this technology, the Genesis device, is used inappropriately? Um, it's interesting. You say we were all thinking that because I never once was. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah, I, 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 I definitely thought. I mean, um, it, it's tinged with this idea of the politics of Starfleet, which I thought was kind of cool that you've got these scientists, even before they meet Kirk, even before they do any of this stuff, arguing about what Starfleet is going to do with their technology. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I thought that was kind of uh, a look behind the curtain into this world of the future. Um, but, you know, like Nomad or like the M5 computer, we get to see the immediate upside and downside of this technology. And even if science is a non-political endeavor, it is made political when that knowledge gets used and perverted. Yeah. Uh, reminds me of that um, Werner von Braun um, quote, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. he, was, he was interested yeah. in rocketry because he wanted to go to space. And the, oh, Nazi, right. yeah, and the yeah. Nazis, it turns out, were interested in rocketry because they wanted to blow up other parts of this planet. Yeah. Um, and 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 uh, hearing that that's how his his um, technology was being used, it, it is said whether this is true or not, we don't know. I don't guess, but it is said that uh, von Braun uh, said the rocket worked perfectly except for landing on the wrong planet. Mm. I mean, it, it's interesting <laughs> that you get you get scientists, and you know, and this is. Absolutely true for everybody. I mean, wasn't this one of this was one of uh, this is why we have the Nobel Peace Prize, right? Yeah, because Alfred right, right, Nobel right. like made TNT. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then was horrified to find all the horrible ways it was used, and so he, you know, put money towards you know, <laughs> what, right. what do we give people a trophy for not blowing each other up? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Basically, exactly. it's a hard trophy to get though, and so people tend to go ahead and blow each other up anyway. Now that said, I think that terraforming is a completely awesome idea. And uh, yeah, yes, we should be researching that because we may need to use it on a planet someday, maybe even our own planet someday, uh, depending on how things are going. Um, I thought if there's that, any Terra left to form, if there's any Terra <laughs> left, yes. Um, so I thought that was a really cool idea, and um, you know, we, we've seen documentaries about the idea of okay, if you were to actually take that on and try to terraform a planet like Mars, okay, well, here are the pieces that would have to be in place, and here are the number of centuries it would take yeah. to get it like that so that humans could actually live there the way that they live on Earth. Um, interesting, though, that in the movie. Wait, wait, wait. Before you go, before you leave that, I mean, there's mm-hmm. a huge difference between terraforming and what we're talking about here. And as you point out, I mean, it is the centuries thing. I mean, Bones is upset mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, uh, that it is said that it took six days to create the Earth, but hold on, we'll do it for you in six minutes, right? right. I mean, that's, right, right. that's part of the whole thing. I mean, it, it's the taking the shortcut. That is, yeah, uh, yeah. that's one of the major things. Oh, and and that's a spoiler alert again. Now that I think about <laughs> it, but even assuming that everything that's going on with the Genesis uh, project is on the up and up, uh, it's taking the shortcut that that ends up being the true danger here, as opposed to, yeah, we'll start with some, we'll start with a, we'll start with a couple of plants, and eventually, right. we'll have a breathable atmosphere. Oh, right, there's right. no soil. Okay, we'll start with some soil. Yeah, right. Well, you know, they they do take at least somewhat of a shortcut that they, you know, they they started testing it on that dead asteroid in the cave. Yes. And they're trying to figure out what would go wrong or what the problems would be. They said that uh, Carol Marcus says that the vegetation happened right away. Life forms grew at an accelerated rate. Yes. That's all we know. 
That's all we know so all far. We know. That's all we need to know. Why? That's all we need to know so far. Uh, interesting, though, that uh, the maps that Starfleet has must be terrible. <laughs> they couldn't get to the SETI Alpha system and go like, okay, one, two, three, four, five. Um, should we just say that that's the sixth one because we don't see number six? Or is that seven? I don't know. We'll go to it. <laughs> well, something terrible happened, as we pointed out. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I'm assuming that it was so cataclysmic that they could easily mistake one planet for another. What if Plus, actually- it's not like a model of the solar system where they're looking at, you know, <laughs> unless they're coming in from way in the top, right? <laughs> if you want to use that sort of terminology so they can see the whole solar system. There's the sun in the middle of it, and there are all the planets. And now I'm only counting five mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, six or however many there are supposed to be. Uh, it's more like they go to roughly where they think, uh, you know, the planet's going to be, and there's a rough planet there, and they were expecting a rough planet roughly where they expected the planet to be, so this must be uh, SETI yeah. Alpha 6. I, although I have to wonder that, you know, if they had terraformed SETI Alpha 6, and then fast forward several years, and you got spaceships showing up, you got people hanging out on that planet, and somebody goes, hey, I, I wonder what's happening at the planet next door. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? Set the Alpha yeah. Five. Yeah. Khan eventually is going to show up. You would think, yeah. yes. Although, yeah. see, there's the problem. There's the problem. You would think that if Chekhov had actually been on the Enterprise during Space Seed, he'd have been like, e- "Let's not go to the Seti Alpha anything." What do you say? <laughs> right. That's a bad yeah. neighborhood. How do yeah. I know? Well, right. Funny story. <laughs> did did they never tell Starfleet? Oh, huh. <laughs> crazy. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of things that Kirk didn't report. Back <laughs> yeah, seems like. To me, the other things that are interesting here about this movie is, is that we really finally get to put Kirk under the microscope. Um, so I talked about how in the motion picture, I really feel like it's Spock's movie. In terms of the character arc, it's Spock's movie. Mm-hmm. Kirk is interesting. We, we do the, the fish out of water thing there. But when we get to this movie... Yeah, the action revolves around Kirk, but we actually get to analyze Kirk and we get to see the things that he did in the past catch up with him now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's a great thread because, yes, Kirk can be heroic and can be awesome, but I think he starts to lose meaning if he's not actually grounded. And this movie essentially grounds Kirk. You know, this movie takes Kirk and uh, so over 15 years to get mm-hmm. where Pike was in the cage. In yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Pike starts out a conflicted character. Pike starts out a guy who's like done, you know? Now, mm-hmm. Kirk's not done in this, but Kirk is is being very self-reflective at mm-hmm. the same way that Pike was initially. And it's really interesting. I'm not, there's, not a, there's not an absolute parallel there, but it, it, I mean, you might have Kirk wondering for a moment sometimes whether he's doing the right thing. I think in uh, maybe The Enemy Within, mm-hmm. uh, he certainly did that. Of course, that's easy because, you know, <laughs> he, was, he was split in two at that point. How do you not right. examine yourself when you're standing right in front of yourself, literally? Yeah. Was that also the one, though, where he was talking about how uh, he, was, he, was, he didn't say he was in love with Rand, but he was like, oh, look at her. She's a lovely woman, but I've got my ship. I don't mm-hmm. think that was Enemy Within, but that was first season. So you did get moments of self-reflection, but... Yeah, yeah. I mean, the self-reflection is really what's defining Kirk in right. this movie, which makes right. it interesting. Um, there were a few lessons that I picked up in this, mm-hmm. some obvious, uh, some less so. 
uh, at least on some occasions, age is mm-hmm. just a number. I mean, what's really prompting Kurt to be so self-reflective at this point is the fact that it's his birthday. And, mm-hmm. and he needs reading glasses now, literally. Right. He needs reading glasses now. And, you know, he's 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 taken a desk job. Yeah. Um, obvious lesson number two, uh, pride and vengeance are foolish, foolish concepts. You would think someone with Khan's intellect would know that. Yeah. And yet uh, he I mean, he will let his people and himself ultimately be destroyed because somebody insulted him. Yeah, is really what it comes down to. Right. Um, Semi obvious message: Check your mess, or your enemies, or your prisoners, whichever. <laughs> As you pointed mm-hmm. out, they would mm-hmm. have eventually come across Khan again. Might not have been a bad idea to report that in. You know how they put up all the markers around all the planets during the original series? Stay away from here because there's a godlike thing. Stay <laughs> right, away from here because right. there's a godlike thing. Yeah. Stay away from here because there's a Gorn. Yeah, I mean, there are all these different... Yeah, yeah. Actually, the Gorn we were going to talk to. That's right. I apologize. So stay away from here. There's a godlike thing. Right. right. Um, yeah, nobody's worried about Seti Alpha. Meh. <laughs> right. With the, uh, with the massive intellect of the uh, eugenics warrior, uh, Khan Noonien Singh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Semi-obvious message number two. Think outside the box. Or, or really mm. don't be so linear in your thinking. This is what killed Khan. And Spock even says it point blank. He's very two-dimensional in his thinking. Right. We right. always fly on one plane, which is kind of nutty, because we, we always do that. And, and even mm. in the next generation, I'm, forgive me, I'm going to go ahead and skip the timeline, but even in the next generation, there's this one like startling scene where the Enterprise comes like barreling up at an exact right angle to another ship. And and <laughs> so like even even we do, we think very sort of one way and, and linear, um, it seems. Yeah. And, and it's an important lesson here to not do that, because... That that and his own, you know, uh, bloodlust or what get Khan killed. Yeah, yeah no, no. Now, uh, above all of that or around all of that, mm-hmm. um, there seems to be a constant uh, current of letting go of preconceived notions in this movie. And maybe that's actually part of the thinking outside the box thing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, David has to let go of his own ideas about Starfleet in general and Kirk in particular. Um, Kirk seems to think because he's a middle-aged man now or or maybe a tiny bit older than that. There are certain things he has to do, including not gallivanting across the cosmos. Right. Um, he's going to take a more respectable admiralty instead of uh, being a starship captain. In a more on-the-nose example, Kirk assumes that because of the uh, Reliant being a, a ship of the fleet, mm-hmm. because the Reliant looks safe, that it must be safe. And so mm-hmm. he ignores the safeties and regulations uh, because he thinks, oh, well, that's fine. Right. And And Spock lets him do that. Uh, maybe because of his reverence for Kirk, or maybe because of his reverence for the org chart, Kirk can't be wrong, and that's where you get where you get um, where you get Savick saying, uh, "Can I? Can I just? Can I just?" And Spock's like, "No, you cannot, because you're down here on the chart. Here, let me pull down the chart. See this, <laughs> see this down here? That's you, and see this up here? That's him. In fact, right. you probably shouldn't even look straight at him. Okay, <laughs> right, right." I mean, there's there's a there's a there's a whole lot. It seems to me that there is a, a a thread that runs through this whole thing of not assuming that things are the way you assume they are, and the people who don't let go of that buy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is yeah. mostly Khan. I mean, Khan really. Does, I mean, he he just because he is completely unchanging in this whole thing. He is not self reflective. He is he is you know everything is as he thinks it is. Period. And right, and that gets right. destroyed, and everybody else really sort of has to come to terms with a few things uh, throughout this movie. 
um, uh, to come out better on the other side or, you know, just to come out on the other side, let alone come out better. It seems a silly question to ask, but it gets asked every week. Does Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, stand the test of time? So, Ken, I, you know, how do we even do this question for this movie? Because the, the question that we always come to, does this hold up? <laughs> does this movie hold up and as i mentioned earlier in the show this movie has taken on a life of its own that is bigger than star trek bigger than the actors and it just is all over the pop culture still mm-hmm. 30 plus years later so i want to know how you're going to approach this in the question of does wrath of khan hold up oh i don't think wrath of khan gets to hold up if it doesn't hold up i don't think it becomes that pop culture touchstone if it doesn't hold up to be mm-hmm. completely honest, I mean, Star Trek The Motion Picture came before Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, and Star Trek The Motion Picture is not the pop culture touchstone, you right. know? Right. Um, I was one of the many people who went to The Phantom Menace just absolutely wanting to love it because I loved Star Wars, I loved The Empire Strikes Back, and though it had problems, I liked a lot of parts of Return of the Jedi, right? Mm-hmm. I was ready to love The Phantom Menace, and I can tell you that that didn't hold up a year <laughs> as yeah, far as right. I was concerned, I was excited enough. That's actually one of the two movies I think that I've seen at Man's um, oh, cool. Chinese Theater in Hollywood, and it's just—I well, don't think they call it that anymore. But it's—it just—I mean, it, it, you know—that was a magic time, and people were yelling and screaming, and it was really exciting. And that was actually the second time that I saw that movie, and it was still just that exciting because it was that new. And then you know the drugs wear off, <laughs> right, right? And you're like, oh well, it turns out that's not good. Yeah. Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan holds up in a number of ways, I think. And certainly it's a little bit dated. And yes, it would have a bigger budget now, which means better effects, although it might mean more storytelling based on what we were saying earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, near future stuff, there's a retina scanner in this. And, yeah. and that is both very futuristic and also accessible. And that's one of my favorite things. It's like that long look that we had at the communicator in the cage. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're like, look at this. This is the future. And yet you can see how this would work, right? Okay, mm-hmm. so we're near future here, and that's kind of neat. I'm a little troubled that the Genesis film is a funding pitch. <laughs> right. It yeah. is a funding pitch. It is it is a straight-out yeah. elevator pitch, um, except with, with graphics. But I don't know where I got the idea that we don't have money, but <laughs> going through everything that we've had in Star Trek, so far there's always money. There's yeah. always money involved, and I'm, I'm kind of bummed by that. But that's very, you know, that's very of today. We don't have super trains for a reason. We're not going to the moon again anytime soon for a reason. Um, so the fact that they need that is kind of uh, both sad and interesting. Uh, it's very in character of McCoy to jump straight to the destructive power of Genesis. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and right. and the, the personalities, I think, I think really the characters are in this movie in a way that they weren't in the motion picture. They come through more, I think, than in the motion picture, and and they get to have more fun. And maybe that's because of the rehearsal, or maybe that's because they're maybe because they've been working together so long, and maybe there's not as much pressure on Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan as there was the motion picture because they hadn't done anything like the motion picture before the motion picture. And now, well, we've been here, so let's maybe ease into it a bit. They're having fun, both the characters and the actors. It feels like the whole, you know, 
when Bones is like, you need to get your, you know, get your command back because you're, you're turning into one of these antiques. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite. It's always been one of my favorite Kirk lines. Don't mince words, Bones. What do you really think? <laughs> it's beautiful. I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah. Scotty yeah. has his weeb out of shore leave. I mean, it feels Rush. like the motion picture. Everyone was just so happy to have the characters back on the screen that they didn't, you know, for the most part, let the characters play. Mm-hmm. Um, with the exception of Spock in the motion picture, there was very little character development. This time, rather than just putting the characters through the motions, uh, it, it feels like these characters have a 15-year history, and they're living that 15-year history. Sulu's happy to be back on the Enterprise. It's, it's a boring, dumb, babysitting job. But Sulu loves being at the helm of the Enterprise, and so Sulu is just completely stoked to be at the helm of the Enterprise. Scotty is mm. irascible, you know? And Kirk's, Kirk, is, Kirk is developing as a character in a way that he did not develop as a character <laughs> up to this point. I mean, this, you said that uh, the motion picture was the turning point for Spock. This could well be a turning point for Kirk. If, yeah. you know, if it's remembered in, in uh, films going forward, which we'll have to check and see all that said, it's sort of like what I said in the beginning. It feels like Paramount wanted to forget the motion picture. They wanted to forget the uniforms. They wanted to forget the, you know, fish out of water feeling experienced by Kirk on the enterprise. Kirk to me felt like Napoleon, Honestly, in the motion picture, <laughs> and right. Rathacani okay. feels to me like somebody who was drawn almost reluctantly back into duty. I mean, there's he thinks he should be, you know, an admiral. He thinks he should have been director of Starfleet operations before, and and oddly enough, he is the only one who doesn't seem to understand at this point what he should be is in charge of the Enterprise. Period. Mm. Um, I I don't feel like this movie suffers from its age. I mean, yeah, it would yeah. have better effects. And and it wouldn't have... I don't think Khan's crew would be the same this time. I think a director would trust that people are going to be okay with a bunch of middle-aged guys, you know, being led by a middle-aged guy, kicking the ass <laughs> of a bunch of middle-aged guys. <laughs> you know, we didn't need a bunch of teenagers uh, on board the Reliant. Um, that's about... The, honestly, that's about the only thing that I could fault this movie for. Otherwise, okay. and 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 I I feel like I'm doing that rationally, not just because I love it, because again, I also loved Superman too. I do not love Superman two anymore. Okay. <laughs> it, it hurts okay. to watch now. Yeah. Um. I feel like this, but you know, like I've said on this show before, this is my Christmas movie, so maybe I maybe I'm seeing it blinded. What about you? Well, I you know this is kind of a difficult show for me uh, because we even. Back before we started Mission Log, I think both of us thought like, oh, man, what are we going to do when we get to the Wrath of Khan? That's that's like the most beloved Star Trek movie, mm-hmm. um, e- even though it is so different, I feel like, from other Star Trek. This movie is a turning point. It is no longer Star Trek, the original series. The, this is something else. Um, and I love this movie and everybody loves this movie. Um, but when we talk about it holding up or not, you know, again, I, I think it depends on how you look at it. Wrath of Khan is an awesome action movie with huge characters. Mm-hmm. We, we get to paint with broad brush strokes of good with a capital G and evil with a capital E. Um, but we also have honest characters. And mm-hmm. that, that's a tribute to the writing and the direction that the actors got. Um, and like I said before, the, this is Kirk's story in the sense that the action revolves around him. But we finally get to chip away at the character of Kirk that we built up in the previous stories. He's getting older. He's not perfect. Um, you, you know, 
the more important thing here is that he has been running from responsibility. He's been, as he says, patting himself on the back for his ingenuity when he gets to avoid a real problem. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to go back to the motion picture, though, in a different way than you did and say that what we started in the motion picture really works well here for Spock because this is Spock Mm 2.0 in in this movie. His mind meld with V'ger has centered him. He is capable of functioning with the crew and he's capable of the ultimate form of compassion. So, yeah, 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 what he did is logical, but it's done with heart. And, and again, this is not the same Spock from Journey to Babel. Can I, can I, mm-hmm. I will agree with you. That's the one thing that carried over. Mm-hmm. This, we don't have Spock again, you know, I mean, we get it from Sabbath, but we don't have Spock going, oh, I don't get your propensity for jokes. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, I don't right. understand you humans, huh? I mean, he, he, he's even, he's even settled into that part. Like when, when, when McCoy does his whole thing about, yeah, stories say it took six days to make the Earth, but hang on, we can do it in six minutes. And Spock's just like, I mean, what's his line? Really, Doctor? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, that's, right. That's beautiful. Right. I mean, you're right. Yeah. Spock, Spock carried over from from the motion picture. I would, I would, I would agree with that as far as that being yeah. his turning point. Cool, cool. Um, so I think this movie holds up incredibly well as a movie. And it's so interesting because no one, no other series gets to do this with its characters. You know, take them in new directions and let them mature. I can't mm-hmm. think of another franchise that really gets to do that in the kind of deep centered way that this one does. Now, as Star Trek, well, I, you know, we get more out of the characters this time around for sure. We raise the stakes this time around for sure. Um, we have a direct sequel to an original series, which is cool. Does it further the moral examination of Star Trek uh, or is this more like sitting on the edge of forever where we have a beautifully told story, but ultimately it's not really related to the vision of Star Trek? Maybe, maybe, you know, we hit upon a few topics, uh, a a few lessons that we learned here. but I don't know if that's really what this is about in a big way. This is about a character study, and it's about the action. And, and I don't think that's a bad thing here. Um, but I think it fits in this kind of weird no man's land of Star Trek, where it's not like the original. It's not. Um, it's not the Gene Roddenberry vision necessarily, but everything that happens here is so dreadfully important to understanding everything else in star trek yeah you know yeah it's kind of a a strange a a strange tightrope that this movie gets to walk and does well and is eminently entertaining yeah i mean well and i think it goes to i mean you stated it perfectly here i mean is city on the edge of forever actually an episode of star trek there are people who will say that it's the best episode of star trek and yet it does not do the whole, you know, who are we, why are we here kind of thing. It's just a fun mind game in a mm. way and a well done mind game and a well told story. Mm. Are we going to say that it's not an episode of Star Trek, though, even though it has the characters and it takes place in that universe? It affects nothing else. I mean, it, right. literally, it literally affects nothing except for Kirk when you think about it. Right. Uh, well, and Spock, I suppose, and McCoy because he was there, too. But I mean, it doesn't affect, you know, any of the any of the ongoing action. Uh, this actually does affect the ongoing action. I guess the one thing I would wonder is, I mean, maybe we have to step back and try to decide what Star Trek is at this point. 
And yeah. is this as much as it's an examination of Kirk? I mean, could you also make the argument if you want to do that it's an examination of Star Trek as well? I mean, maybe it would have been easier to just keep playing the mind games, or maybe it would have just been easier to have this devolve into just a big shoot 'em up thing. Um, maybe examining the character is something. And I mean, maybe it's Star Trek examining the character of Star Trek. Does this go on? Does this need to go on? What 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 part does it play for itself and for everybody else going forward? I mean, it's you you do have a middle aged show yeah, <laughs> at right, that point, right? right? And you've yeah. got a middle aged show studying what it's like to be middle aged. And what yeah. it means for it. So, I, I don't know. That might be reaching. It probably is reaching, actually. But I have a hard time saying that it's not Star Trek because it feels to me like there is such an examination. I mean, again, Kirk is at the place that Pike started. Yeah. And the fact that the fact that the very first episode of Star Trek was going to start with this same sort of existential crisis makes me think that it's not frivolous for, for Kirk to be going through it all through this, epi- uh, all through this movie. I want to come back to this in just one minute here because that made me think of one of the one of the lessons that that we got out of this. You know, what did we learn in today's episode? And I pulled a few of these really important lines from the movie. Um, first and foremost, the the most obvious one: the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. This idea of self sacrifice, or at least you know, putting others ahead of yourself. So as I said, this is not the Spock that we met before. Um, this is definitely not the Spock who stole a spacesuit to go mind meld with V'ger. Um Is he acting out of logic or compassion? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and in fact, I love how Spock, right before he goes into the radiation chamber, tells McCoy, I have no time to discuss this logically. Yeah. The logic is just totally out the window at this point. He He's doing what he has to do. Um, I don't know that I would say that logic is out the window. I think he's just saying, look, I don't have time to explain. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, it actually is kind of interesting to me that, that McCoy, I mean, McCoy, and it's, it's part of that, it's part of that, that innately human thing in McCoy, right? He mm-hmm. gets that everybody's going to die if Spock doesn't go in there, but he yeah. can't let Spock die. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. makes no sense, which is where, you know, Spock says, I don't have time to discuss this with you, with you logically. Right. Yeah. Um, Kirk's line, how we deal with death is at least as important as how we deal with life. Maybe not as much a lesson, but a theme of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, there he is at the beginning when he says that line, he's dispensing the platitudes that he has no intention of following. Right. <laughs> you know, and David calls him out on that. Uh, at the end, well, uh, Kirk calls himself out. David says it was they were good words. Kirk says, look, they were just words. Um, so Kirk cheated. You know, as we pointed out many times before on our show, Kirk simply got lucky on so many occasions. Mm-hmm. And I have to wonder, and I, I think it was really cool, if this was a pattern that the writers, uh, the writers who came before Nick Meyer and then Nick Meyer himself, they picked up on that while reviewing the original series. Because it's a great way to kind of subvert this idea while simultaneously justifying the presence of all that previous bad behavior. <laughs> you know, it, it justifies the idea of Kirk basically getting away with it for over a decade because now we make it have meaning. Yeah. Um, really just brilliant writing on, uh, on their part to, to get that in. Um, uh, anything to be learned from Khan's single-minded insanity? You know, you know, don't hold a grudge. 
Um, it's certainly useful for David to learn that lesson, as you hit upon uh, previously. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, easy, the, uh, it's easy for David to learn it, though, because it's his dad. Yeah. I mean, you can, yeah, yeah, you can yeah. say, oh, I don't like him because he wasn't there, or oh, I don't like him because he's Starfleet. But, you know, any kid who grew up without a dad, I mean, yeah. is going to have a is going to have a just ask Spock. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. right. <laughs> well, he technically didn't grow up without a dad, but have you seen the two of them together? Uh, he yeah. kind of grew up without a dad. I mean, there's a there's a um, yeah. I mean, it, it's a little bit easier for David to come to that, I think. Although, you know, a, a few years from now, maybe decades from now, David might have some other issues about that. But we'll have to see what happens maybe. with David uh, years but, and decades. Yeah, let's <laughs> let's now. let's check in on him again yeah. and see how that goes. Yeah. Um, but let's get back to this thing about Star Trek exploring humanity. Mm-hmm. The One of the last lines in the movie here, um, at the memorial service with Spock, Kirk says, of all the souls I have encountered in my travels, his was the most human. So I'm kind of wondering what Kirk's definition of human is here. Because Spock went through a long period of aloof detachment, you know? And, and it's worth asking... Since Star Trek keeps asking what is human, what is that indefinable thing that makes humans or humanity unique? Because now we're taking the guy who has done nothing but struggle with his human side up until very recently. And Kirk says that that he was the most human. Um, so I, at that point, is it is it the friendship? Is it the sacrifice? Is it, um, well, I think you may have, I, I don't know if you meant to, but I think you may have hit on it. It might be the struggle. I mean, mm-hmm. though mm-hmm. you don't have Gene Roddenberry as involved in this anymore. That was always Kirk's measure, right? Go back to mm-hmm. the feeders of Vol. go back to this side of paradise. Mm-hmm. Those people were happy. Those people were more than happy. They were Kugat. I mean, they were, <laughs> they were so stoked to be in their lives. Right. But they weren't struggling. They yeah. weren't doing anything. And that, to Kirk, always meant, uh, this isn't right. These people should actually be striving. And and Spock, as you say, was always struggling or striving to reconcile, um, well, I mean, I guess you could say everything. I mean, what it's always presented to us as is the logical side of being a Vulcan and, and the passions of, of being, you know, part human. Plus, I guess Vulcans on some level are always striving to keep their passions at bay. Right. Ever since the ultimate Vulcan or the first Vulcan or the the greatest Vulcan or the greatest American Vulcan, I think he was. <laughs> right. Um, so, I mean, maybe, the, I mean, that honestly to Kirk could be what makes him the most human. The fact that he was constantly, constantly correcting course. Yeah. That he was constantly working to be the absolute best he could be with what he had. Um, rarely, I mean, with the exception of Ponfar or uh, that time with Mariette Hartley. Uh, rarely gave into his passions, right? Right, right. Almost never. Um, and yet, you know, did not just save his own skin either. He was not purely logic. He was not, I mean, he was constantly trying to, he was tr- constantly trying to make those things mesh. And and certainly original series, Spock would think, hey, I mean, original series Kirk, excuse me, would think, hey, you're struggling your whole life. That's great. <laughs> you're it. Yeah. You yeah. are it. You, we're going to put a poster. You know, if I had a chart, I'd put you right on top of it. <laughs> well, Ken, um, you know, so sad that we uh, lost Spock in this movie. But, I know, uh, but terrible. What, what do you say? What do you say we uh, we check in and uh, and see if there's any future to be had with Spock next week 
when we cover Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. Some of the music formation log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Don't forget, there's still plenty of great mission log to come. Keep listening, seriously, great episodes, like next week when we cover Star Trek 3. Not the Wrath of Khan, but hey, not bad. And transmission. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.